Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thus far, uh, the reading of God's holy word for us uh, today. And we turn now to our catechism lesson, Lord's Day 21, in the third part of the Apostles' Creed. And we'll read responsively the three questions. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through his Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, one and all, as members of Christ the Lord, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into judgment. Well, that is our catechism lesson today. And it is a rich one. Um, It's good to remember uh, that we began uh, the Apostles' Creed a little ways back. And we introduced the Creed as uh, being divided into three parts. 
And we are in the third part, which the Catechism calls God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. I was uh, doing a membership training with someone yesterday morning, and you get to the line in the Belgic Confession. It's a very small, short article on the Holy Spirit. You think, yeah, we Reformed Christians, we really don't care about the Holy Spirit. Um, But it's important for us to remember that the Holy Spirit is at work throughout um, the work of God's redemption, and indeed is mentioned again and again and again. And this whole section of the creed is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that gathers a holy Catholic Church that makes and brings us into communion with other saints that works in the forgiveness of our sins and therefore, as holy ones, will rise us up from the dead and give us life after everlasting. So the Spirit is applying the work of redemption in and through the church. This is the work of the Spirit, just as much as suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, is the work of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And so we begin with the church. And uh, we need to acknowledge that American Christians have a very low view of the church. I came to Reformed Christianity in my college years. And what I was excited about, the Reformed faith, was the doctrines of grace, uh, sin, salvation, faith alone, uh, five points of Calvinism, God's sovereignty that uh, presented to uh, my youthful mind this big, glorious picture of God that I thought was very compelling and very biblical. But over the last 30 years or so, uh, what has really dawned on me more and more is how much uh, the Reformation cared about the life of the church, the importance of the church in our faith and in our confession and in our Christian uh, life. Uh, Reformed Christianity is a reform of the church. It is not an abandonment of the church. And it's really uh, modern forces, including largely uh, revivalism uh, in North America, that inevitably has weakened our view of the institutional church. Um, Again, it's worth noting, while we only have this one question directly, explicitly on the church in our catechism, that questions 65 through 85, uh, upcoming in the coming weeks, cover preaching, sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, and the keys of the kingdom. Um, In terms of word count, that's almost a quarter of the catechism. 23% of our catechism is on the means of grace in the life of the church. Um, And I often point out that the same thing is true in the Belgic Confession of Faith. Out of 37 articles, the last 11 have to do with the church, the Holy Catholic Church, the obligations of church members, the marks of the church, the government, the officers, the order and discipline, the sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, how the church relates to civil government, and how the church will be gathered and glorified in the last judgment. The Protestant Reformation was a reformation of the church. And um, as as Americans, as moderns, we need to fight hard against the various uh, acidic forces that break down our joy and confidence and appreciation uh, for the church of Jesus Christ. And, And listen clearly to the words, not only of our tradition, but the words of Scripture. Um, Citing one powerful passage from Belgic Confession, Article 28, we believe that since this holy assembly and congregation is the gathering of those who are saved, there is no salvation apart from it. Again, I was uh, spent much of my time in evangelicalism thinking that was a Roman Catholic teaching. No, it's a teaching of the church fathers. No one ought to withdraw from it, content to be by himself regardless of his status 
or condition. The confession continues, all people are obliged to join and unite with it, keeping the unity of the church by submitting to its instruction and discipline, by bending their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and by serving to build up one another according to the gifts God has given them as members of each other in the same body. And to preserve this unity more effectively, it is the duty of all believers, according to God's word, to separate themselves from those who do not belong to the church in order to join this assembly wherever God has established it, even if civil authorities and royal decrees forbid and death and physical punishment result. Even if, in a time of persecution, you will likely go to your death for joining a church. Our confession teaches that you should join that church. Now, that is a counsel I would submit of wisdom and depends upon the particular context. Uh, There's nothing wrong with being a member of an underground church in China or in the Middle East, for instance. Um, And not just our confession and our tradition. We should care about the church because Christ cares about the church. In Matthew 16... He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, this rock of of his confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in the church. The catechism will speak of these keys as the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of the law. Opening heaven to believing sinners and closing heaven to unrepentant sinners. Matthew 18, as well, speaking, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of many witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. And again, he repeats the binding and loosing and says in that context where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, I think uh, that that it's important that we acknowledge that the gathering of two or three uh, is related there to the gathering in the name of Christ. It's related to that context of the keys and discipline. I was on a youth trip once when I was 18 years old uh, in my pre-reformed days. And we were driving across uh, Poland in a minivan. And, you know, we bought a a box of Toblerone chocolates. And our youth pastor said, let's have communion. Um, Two or three are gathered. We can do church right here, right? Um, That's not what Jesus is saying. I would submit that that's a misapplication of this passage. What Jesus is saying here is that where a couple of you are gathered in the name of Christ. And that has to be informed by other views on the authority of the apostles themselves and the others, the elders put in charge in the mystery of the church. Christ loves the church. Paul in Ephesians writes, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Again, we understand that he sanctifies the church through his spirit, right? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ longs for our sanctification, our purification, through the means of preaching and baptism and sacraments. 
The word church is all over in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in the Corinthian correspondence where there's conflict in the church, 19 times in the book of Revelation, over 100 times in the New Testament. If it's not in the Gospels, for obvious reason before Pentecost, right, as Jesus is calling the Old Testament covenant community to faith in him, it does appear widespread throughout the rest of the New Testament. And before we turn to what our catechism says about the church, one important point of teaching from the Belgic Confession uh, that is a common one in the 16th century and a useful one is the idea of the marks of the church in Article 29. This teaching reminds us that not everyone who calls themselves a church, not every institution that calls itself and takes the name of church on its lips is a true and faithful church. We must discriminate and discern. In the context of the Reformation, our confession is talking about the church in Rome and uh, false radical reformers, the Anabaptist sects. Now, it's important that, that the confession is not talking about individuals. It's not saying that these people are going to hell because they're in this church or are not saved. The wheat and the tares, which Jesus bore witness to. That's true of all churches, that there are true believers and hypocrites in all churches. Rather, what our, what, our, uh, what our confession is talking about is the institution, the organization. And it says that the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. And it practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it, holding Jesus Christ as its only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. The church should be a source of our assurance, of our comfort as believers. It shouldn't be a place of doubt. I've always thought that this is a practical and useful teaching in the modern world when we move around a lot and have to sometimes find new churches. Uh, what do we look for? How do we evaluate them? We have this really useful historic guide, word, and sacrament, and discipline. This is a good outline of questions to ask a pastor if you move to a new town. So our catechism asks, what is the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community, chosen, elected for eternal life, and united in true faith. And of this community, I am, and always will be, a living member. The Church is created by God's election. The church is a creature of the word. The word creates the church. John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the sheep that my father gives me will hear my voice. Gathered, protected, and preserved by the Son of God. Jesus, in Matthew 16, which we already read, On this rock I will build my church. Christ builds his church. Christ defends her from the gates of hell. And we are united uh, our catechism teaches us by our faith. There are a lot of things that we can divide over, um, as we see in the modern American landscape of churches, right? A lot of different brands, specialization in the marketplace. We can separate ourselves in many different ways. 
But Ephesians 4 says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. And that's why he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. The equipping of the saints is through the the teaching and the instruction in the faith that we might be united through our knowledge and our faith and our union with Christ. We are addressed as members of the church by our catechism. Notice that the catechism isn't inviting necessarily in this context strangers. People who belong to Christ are being catechized. Our children are being catechized. And... Even here in this section on the church, the theme of assurance and comfort that runs throughout our catechism is prominent. Who are a living member and always will be. That was in stark contrast to what the medieval church taught. The medieval church taught doubt and fear. Uh, Today, many churches threaten from their pulpit in their ministries. If you don't do enough, if you don't serve enough, if you don't give enough, You can't be a member of Christ's church. But in true faith, we can be assured that we are and always will be living members of Christ's church. What a blessing that is. Next, we turn to the communion of saints. The creed uh, was written in Latin, probably based on the old Roman creed. And we would have seen in the Latin creed a threefold repetition of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of holy people. Sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. R.C. Sproul liked to say, this threefold holiness is, is like a perfection of God's holiness. And the Spirit works that into the church. Our communion with one another is by way of our communion with Christ. The first, that believers, one and all, as members of Christ the Lord, have communion with Him and share in all His treasures and benefits. Again, assurance. There's no doubt that you have all the blessings of Christ. But He is the head of the body, so we also have communion with one another. Second, that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. Brothers and sisters, the grace of the full and free forgiveness of our sins, all the blessings we have in Christ, can and is not not idiosyncratic to duty and obligation that flows from gratitude. Right? We are duty-bound by our union with Christ to nurture our union with one another. And this communion is well expressed in the frequent uh, metaphor of the body in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. I would not make it any less a part of the body, but God has so composed the body. You see, God builds the church, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. We are to have the same care for one another that God has for each one of us in our diversity, 
in our strengths, in our weaknesses. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. It is not as though our union in Christ dissolves our personality or our uniqueness. Christ builds us together, unifies us, and preserves, individually makes us members. And this metaphor of the body prepares us for diversity within the church. It calls us to live in peace and harmony with different kinds of people. Today we think of this overwhelmingly in ethnic or socioeconomic diversity. We think of Supreme Court cases about affirmative action and college admissions. But of course diversity includes personality types. It includes different interests, different hobbies, diversity of giftings. And I'm always thoughtful of this. We're preparing to return to the second half of Ephesians in the fall. And we'll pick up in chapter 4 where Paul begins to apply the gospel. And the starting point for the gospel is in the life of the church. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The gifts that he, he celebrates and puts right there at the front is dealing with other people who frustrate you. Be humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Bear with them. The story of Paul and Barnabas and John, John Mark and Silas, uh, came, came to mind in this connection. A couple weeks ago at Luke's installation uh, for Birmingham, we talked about Acts chapter 13. And there we saw that the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas apart. And what, what the, it doesn't say is that John, who had been mentioned earlier in chapter 12, was sent with them. In verse 5, we learn that John was with them and assisting them. And verse 13 says that John left Paul and Barnabas and returns to Jerusalem. There's no explanation. We don't know why. But later in chapter 15, after the Jerusalem council, Paul invites Barnabas to join with him on a missionary journey. And Barnabas wants to bring John along. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is one of those places where the New Testament record in the book of Acts reads very historically, very legitimately. There's conflict, and it doesn't whitewash it. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, as I'm sure you're all aware, Paul is writing to Timothy, his ministry partner, and he says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, same person, John Mark, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for my ministry. So Paul, who had this sharp disagreement about doing ministry with John Mark in Acts 15, here, years later, at the end of his ministry, calls the same John Mark very useful for his ministry. It's encouraging us, for us to see Paul and work through this reconciliation among the leadership of the church. 
And this brings us to the forgiveness of sins. We, we read about the reconciliation, which involves uh, the love of Christ controlling us. We've all died to our flesh. We've died to our sins. We no longer live for ourselves in the church. And so forgiveness is the foundation of this communion and unity we have in Christ. In case you might be tempted to believe that only those who are perfectly holy can be members of the holy Catholic Church and the communion of holy persons, our catechism and our creed reminds us the holiness of the church is brought about by the forgiveness of sins, the washing of the Spirit. We do not teach perfectionism. We confess that our sinful nature And we need to struggle against it all our lives. The church is full of sinners. It's a hospital for sick people. For sinners. And it's the holiness of Christ. And again, look. Never missing an opportunity for assurance. Rather, by His grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment. Imputation is being taught here. We are forgiven because of Christ's righteousness. Not because of our own. Not because of... The, the strength of our faith or the sincerity of our conversion. This is the gospel. Christ's righteousness imputed to me. And because of that, we are, brothers and sisters, a new creation. We are called to live not in the light of our sin or our flesh, but out of the new creation that we are in Christ. And that's where the church's unity will finally be perfect. We'll finally all sing perfectly in tune And we don't do so today. We struggle towards it. We strive towards it. But that's our hope and our confidence that God, having made him sin who knew no sin, is making us the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Merciful God, we thank you for these comforting teachings of your church, that you have sent your spirit into the world, this gift of grace. We are not even able to apply your work apart from your own spirit dwelling in our hearts, uniting us to you and to one another in the church, reconciling us to one another in the communion of saints, and each and every day forgiving our sins. Lord, we are privileged to be ambassadors, ministers of this reconciliation, this forgiveness, and help us exercise it in our midst, and especially proclaim it to the world this day and every day in how we live our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.